Well, hello, interwebs. Welcome to another episode of the Orlando Ramirez Show. I'm your host, Dr. Orlando Ramirez, and I'm here, um, well, really here to, to talk a little bit about uh, Ayn Rand. But before I get into that, um, I've been having problems with my microphone. <laughs> well, actually, what's interesting is my laptop, I don't exactly know when this happened. I noticed it a couple of weeks ago. But um, my laptop has bulged out. I think, I think heat got in there. Uh, I think this is an allergic reaction to heat buildup or something, which is really weird because it does sit on a cooling pad. And what ended up happening was is the top of my laptop has bulged out, um, kind of come up, you know, and it's kind of warped now the top or the keyboard is at. I mean, the functionality seems fine. Uh, but I was typing on it the other day and I thought, well, this is really weird. And as I was looking at it from the side, I could tell that the whole keyboard and everything is warped. So I think this is a result of, of heat uh, from inside, you know, not getting dissipated out uh, well enough. And I think it bulged out, which is kind of a shame. I mean, I have had it for a couple of years now, so it's getting closer to me to, you know, needing to get a, a new laptop. So I'll probably get another laptop here in the next year. Hopefully I can at least keep this one around for another year before I invest in a new laptop. I don't travel with this one at all. So it's not like I'm, it's not like I dropped it or, you know, it sits on my desk the entire time. But the reason why I'm saying that is because I was noticing that I was having really weird issues with audio in my recordings and the USB connector for my microphone wasn't getting plugged all the way in. And I, it was playing around with that, so hopefully, hopefully this records a little bit better than I've been recording in the past. Um, we'll see how we'll see how this transpires. Okay, I was running some some tests a little bit ago to check to see if the sounding was if the sound was getting better, and uh, and it was. Um, I noticed that I was I lost the um, the option for my plug and play microphone. And that's how this whole thing started. But anyway, hopefully this is uh, is doing better. So, um, okay. So there's there there's a lot of craziness that's going on right now, especially on social media. Uh, we had another, and we had another shooting this time in Wisconsin. This was a police shooting. I don't know if you've seen the video related to it. The the video. The video is pretty um, is pretty brutal. It's hard to tell what's happening. So if you've seen the video, you you know what I'm talking about. If you haven't, then I'll try to explain it as as best I can. But somebody is across the street. It's in the neighborhood. Somebody's across the street. It looks like they're on the second floor of their house or an apartment complex or something, and they're filming this altercation um, that is going on across the street from them. And there's a there's a car that's parked there on the side of the street. And it's obviously a black neighborhood. There's a large contingent and by large, uh, probably not a very good descriptor of it, but there are some, there are some people gathered from the neighborhood who are in the front yard across the street. They're off to the left. And, you know, there's probably five or six, maybe 10 or a dozen, um, people there and there's 
you can see that on the other side of the vehicle, there are, I think, three police officers. And it's hard to tell what they're, what they're doing on the other side of the vehicle. The, 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 the side is, you know, our side is blocked from the camera. But a black man stands up and he walks around the front of the car and the police have their weapons drawn on this individual. And there are three, three police officers there. They have their weapons drawn on him. He walks around the front of the vehicle and they're following him, obviously issuing some kind of order uh, for him to stand down and to comply with what they're telling him to do, which of course he's not doing so. And he then opens the car door and one of the police officers tries to grab him before he's able to get into the car. And he gets into the car and that's when the police officers open fire and they shoot him probably a good five, six or eight times, something like that. I heard reports that he actually survived this shooting, that he's in the hospital. Um, I don't know. I don't know for certain. Uh, I've heard other reports that he was actually going into the vehicle to get a weapon. And that I guess he thought he was going to be dirty hairy against these cops or something like that. Uh, and of course, this has created issues within within the city it's over it's in was this one this incident was in wisconsin so over the weekend there were various riots of as blm and antifa have gathered in protest of what has happened here and in fact there were video this morning that i saw where the rioters and i call them that because they're not just protesting anymore they, there was a video where they have they ignited um a car dealership and you see a, a good 20 or 30 vehicles that are on fire, completely destroyed. And I think what we're getting ready to experience now as a country, and I think most people should be prepared for this. I think we're getting, we're, we're getting ready for round two of these race riots. I think BLM and Antifa after the weekend's, after this last weekend's um, shooting, I think they're going to start turning it, turning things up a notch. There was another video, and I don't remember where this one was shot, but there were protesters on the street, and they were blocking an armored police car. It looks like an SUV. It's all armored up and everything. And they were blocking the path of the vehicle. They would not allow the police car to, to go to wherever it is that it's trying to get to. And yet there are people surrounding this vehicle, several protesters who have semi-automatic weapons, not just pistols, but semi-automatic rifles, like AR-15s or whatever. These rioters are now starting to come prepared as if they're going to war. And the police were able to throw out what looked like tear gas canisters and the people dispersed and the vehicle was able to drive on to get to wherever it was that these police officers were trying to get to. But things are getting, you know, these protests and these riots are, are starting to crank it up a notch. And now that we have video of a terrible shooting, I mean, it's terrible no matter how you slice it, whether you are pro-cop, or anti-cop, it doesn't really matter. It's a terrible shooting. It looks awful. And again, I, I'm not passing judgment. I'm not passing judgment on the police officers yet because I don't know anything. 
the video the video that was released online shows very little of what actually happened. We don't know what transpired up until that point. The video itself is only a few seconds long, at least that what what I've seen. It's only a few seconds long. And so we don't know what transpired before the cops even got there. I don't really, it's not really clear why the cops were there to begin with, other than I've heard uh, grumblings that this was a domestic, some kind of domestic altercation. And I think he had a warrant out for his arrest already. Maybe the police were delivering a warrant. I don't know. Again, we don't have anything concrete. I haven't seen anything concrete yet. We have no idea what the police were doing minutes before the shooting occurred. You can't see what's happening on the other side of the vehicle. People have said that they tried tasering him and he just, you know, schleffed it off. I don't know. I don't know if any of this is true. And I think it's still too early for us to know what has actually, what actually happened. Hopefully at some point the police will release the body cam footage, if there is any, I don't know. And maybe that'll tell another part of the story. Well, regardless, we have these riots now that are now taking place. We had some over the weekend that were in Denver, Colorado, where Antifa and BLM were smashing windows in in local businesses in downtown Denver. And now this latest shooting in Wisconsin, the ongoing riots that have been happening in Portland for 80 plus days now. And now with such a brutal murder that was actually captured on video, I think that we're, I think that we're in for a complete and new round of these riots. The Democratic National Convention was last week. And since it was virtual, there wasn't really a location. I mean, there was a location per se. I mean, there was some people in the DNC got together. But it wasn't the big extravaganza that we normally see. Same with the GOP, which is taking place this week. It kicked off, the, uh, off today. Political tensions are increasing as we get closer and closer to the election. And so I think we're going to start seeing these riots ramp up to 13, I guess, in terms of just awfulness that's about to transpire. And so this has prompted, you know, this is kind of setting the stage for what I wanted to talk about, which was Ayn, Ayn Rand. There are now people on Ayn Rand, or I mean, sorry, people online who are now trending or who are talking about Ayn Rand. And you might say, well, what is it that they're actually talking about? What does this have to do with anything? Well, Ayn Rand has been, you know, there are people who like her books and then there are people who absolutely hate her. And I've come to find that people who are collectivist, who are much more left-leaning, they dislike Ayn Rand and everything that she has written. I'm a fan of her books. I haven't read all of her books, but I've read a few of them and I really enjoy them. I've read Atlas Shrugged a number of times. 
the reason why this is trending is because you have a lot of Marxists right now online. And for some reason they started, they started talking about how they wouldn't date anybody who owns her books. I don't think anybody who has, who has read and appreciates Ayn Rand's books cares if a Marxist will date them or not. But here's some, somebody online, they, they put together a list of quotes by Ayn Rand, and I've seen these quotes before, and these are nothing new, but they put it out there for the masses. I think there are a lot of people who dislike Ayn Rand, but they've never read her, her, her writings. And her, her books are fairly intimidating. I mean, Atlas Shrugged is well over a thousand pages long. And the Fountainhead, which is another one of her great works, is uh, just as long, if I'm not mistaken. I've only read The Fountainhead once, but I've read Atlas Shrugged a few times. And one of the, one of the reasons I think why people dislike Ayn Rand is because her books tend to critically evaluate in a negative way socialism. And so if you are a fan of socialism, then it would be, it's very natural that you would dislike any of Ayn Rand's writings. But here are a couple of, here are some of the quotes that uh, I wanted to read and talk about. The first one here is the smallest minority is the individual. And I think that's a really important quote. We tend to say within our society that the minorities, that minorities need to be protected or minorities need to have a voice. We tend to look at minorities based on racial segregation. Hispanics, for example, or blacks or Asians, we tend to accept and recognize that those groups of people are minorities. And so there needs to be a special treatment for minorities, at least to the extent of we need to hear their voices. We need to hear what they have to say as a, as a group. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But this quote by Ayn Rand is really, is really enlightening, I think, and that a lot of people should take to, to uh, should at least take heed. And that is the smallest minority is, in, is the individual. You can't get much smaller than that. And so when we're talking about the voice of the, of the minority, we need to be thinking about who is the voice that is not going with the general flow of things. Who are those groups of people that are not lockstep with the majority? Because we should be making sure that we're listening to them, that they at least have a seat at the table. Because it's not about racial segregation. It's not about Asians versus Hispanics versus blacks versus whites. It's about what is right for the individual and what is best for the individual. Here's another quote. Statum, statism needs war. A free country does not. Statism survives by looting. A free country survives by producing. That's a very um, profound quote by Ayn Rand. Because collectivism, collectivism, you look, if you look at the history of communism, for example, in the history of fascism, which is very, very similar, they need an enemy to, to survive. Because it is an enemy that you can point to 
to say they are the reason for all of our ills. And in fact, the reason why statism needs war is because the war focuses the production in the country. Because under communism, for example, when, when the Soviet Union, if you look at the history of the Soviet Union, when the, history, when the Soviet Union was not at war, then it was very difficult for the country to produce goods and services because there was a command and control structure to the, to the economy. And in a command and control environment, it's difficult to know what should be produced and what should not be produced and in what numbers. But war is a different matter. If you're going to war, there are very specific things that you need to field an army. And so war gives the direction for the state and gives direction for the producers within the state, makes it easier for the command and control structure to declare what should be important and what should be produced in, a large, in large quantities. So statism needs war, a free country does not. Here's another quote, when the law no longer protects you from the corrupt, but protects the corrupt from you, you know your nation is doomed. Now think about that one for a moment. We have situations in our country where politicians get off with a, with a warning or they get off with just being censured. In some cases, we as a society allow politicians to walk free without anything happening to them. We had a president who, used, who weaponized the IRS and used the IRS to spy on American citizens. Nothing happened. And that's one example. But we have numerous examples of politicians getting away with other things that you and I would go to prison for. And that's a problem. If our politicians cannot be held to the same standards as us, then we are doomed to failure. Another quote here, the government was set to protect man from criminals and the constitution was written to protect man from the government. And that's really important because the constitution is actually a, a list of things that the government cannot do to you. Now, the main body of, of the constitution, it, la it outlines all of the powers that the government has. And then the bill of rights is a list of, is a list of things that the government cannot do to you. It's not to say that the government has given you certain freedoms or has given you certain rights. On the contrary, it is the Bill of Rights, for example, is a limitation of what the government can do to you. In fact, and when you look at the rest of the Constitution, how it outlines the, the powers of the, different, uh, of the three different branches, the Constitution is a constraint on the actual powers because the Constitution outlines exactly what powers the government has. In other words, it's a way to constrain the government and control its actions. The Constitution establishes a set of boundaries and says, and then tells the government, you cannot operate, you cannot do things outside of this boundary. Here's another one. There is no such dichotomy as human rights versus property rights. 
no human rights can exist without property rights. Because everything that you have, even if it's your own mind and the own, your own knowledge that you possess, your, your, the knowledge that you have is essentially your own property. We recognize this fact in corporations. It's called intellectual property. And if you do not have property rights, then you do not own your own intellectual property either. And yet, this is the one thing that communism strives to do. It strives to abolish all property rights. But if you abolish all property rights, then there is no, there are no human rights. Because everything that we talk about with regard to human rights, we're talking about our own property, whether it's the property of our own minds, our own intellect, our knowledge that we can use to produce other goods and services, or whether we're talking about our own dollars, the, the currency that we owned, which is a form of property, or our own physical property that we think of when we think about property, which is you know, the homes in which we, in which we live. Property can also mean, can also refer to those under our care, such as our children. Our children do not have, you know, if you're under uh, the age of 18 in this country, then you're, as a child, you are technically the property of your parents or of your legal guardian. Without that property right being acknowledged, then anybody can do anything with, their, with, that, with that property, which means your children are up for grabs. You don't have a say in how your children are raised or how they're disciplined or what they consume. I like this one. Here's another quote. Run for your life. Run for your life from any man who tells you that money is evil. That sentence is the leper's bell of an approaching looter. And that's very true because one of the things that these people try to do is they try to get you to believe that money is evil. If they can get you to believe that money is evil, then they can get you to part with it. Because if money is evil, then why should you hold on to something that is evil? Very, um, you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as being forces for good. People generally like to think of themselves as being good. And if I tell you, hey, this thing that you have a lot of, that's technically evil. You shouldn't hold on to it. It's easier for me to convince you than to give it up. Because if you, if you believe wholeheartedly that it's evil, then you're willing to give it away. You're willing to give it up and let it go. And the problem is, is the people who are telling you that it's evil, they actually want the dollars for themselves. They want the money for themselves because they want to be able to do other things with it. And so that's what they do. They tell you, they sell you on this idea that your money is evil, so therefore you should give it to me. Well, if it's evil, then why would you want it? If it's evil, then you shouldn't want it either. So we should destroy it so that neither one of us gets corrupted by it, should we not? Here's another quote. All depressions are caused by government interference, or I'm sorry, let me, let me begin again. All depressions are caused by government interference, and the cure is always offered to take more of the poison that caused the disaster. Depressions are not the result of a free economy. And that's true. If you look through the history of economics, you look at how economies function. 
yes, economies do enter into and exit from depressions. They do happen. They're part of the, the cycle of economies. But if, an, but if a free economy is able to operate free of government interference, then those depressions are very, very short-lived. Most of the time, those depressions don't even last more than a few months because the economy eventually rebounds. And the economy as a, as a, as a collection of independent thinkers who are capable of, of adapting based on their own signals and what is happening around them, then those people will adapt and the economy will come out of that, out of that depression. And these are naturally forming depressions. What Ayn Rand is referring to here is she's referring to these more systemic types of depressions, the kind that last for years. And those types of depressions are caused by government influence, by government intervention. The government tries to do something. They try to control a price. They try to control the supply and or the demand of, of particular products and goods within, a, uh, within an economy. And as a result of that, the economy crashes because it is all nearly impossible for a centralized group of people to adequately predict and control, let alone control, the supply and demand of a product or service. And then, of course, you have these politicians who are in play, who are doing the manipulation and doing the control. And what do they tell you? They tell you that, well, we need to, we need to do more of the same stuff that caused the depression in the first place. We need to increase taxes, for example. Or we need to spend on, we need to spend even 10 times the amount of money that we did before on, on green proposals renewable energies, etc. Just using that as an example. Here's another quote. Do not ever say that the desire to do good by force is a good motive. Neither power lust nor stupidity are good motives. Most people, I think many leftists believe this. The idea of doing good is to force you to do something. We see this happening right now with Antifa and BLM. They want to force people to behave a certain way for our own benefit, no less. For our own good. We see this happening. We've seen, you've seen it happening and playing out in New York City for a number of years where the government in New York City has banned certain types of foods or products all in the name of doing what is good for the population. I like this quote, whoever claims the right to redistribute the wealth produced by others is claiming the right to treat human beings as chattel. And that happens all the time. We see that all the time. Because in order to redistribute wealth, you have to take that wealth away from somebody at the point of a gun. You have to threaten them with violence. In order to get them to part with their things, with their property, you have to tell them it's evil. You have to tell them they are evil for holding on to it. 
you are also by redistributing wealth, you are also placing some people as being more equal and more, more worthwhile than others. You might say, well, what about the free market? Doesn't it do that to a point? But people are not willingly going out and making winners or, or losers of people, of others. There will always be inequality. There will always be inequality of things. There will always be people who have things and people who do not have things. But those things are not, when they happen within a free market society, those that do not have certain things, those that do not have wealth, or maybe they have less wealth than others, that is the natural result of people making choices for themselves within that economy. Those inequalities are not stipulated nor dictated by one or a small group of people. But when you have a centralized government that is tasked with redistributing wealth, then you have a small group of people who are making winners and losers out of everybody else in the country. And in making some people winners, you have to make some people losers. And when you're making some people losers, you're treating them as chattel. Because you can't treat them as normal human beings. Because those people will rise up. Those people will say things and speak out. When they speak out against you and say things like, why are you treating me like this? Then the only, all, the only other option that the state has is to dehumanize those individuals. You have to dehumanize them if you're the central, the central planner. If you're the state, you have to dehumanize those people because you have to make your power legitimate in the eyes of the larger population. If you don't treat them like chattel, then you are, then you do not create a strong argument to retain power in the eyes of those who remain. You have to point fingers. You have to dehumanize. You have to put, you have to create a situation where it's us versus them. You have to create the outsider, the other, if you will. That's how you galvanize support around the power that you, that you, that you hold dear within the state. And this last quote here I really like is, the difference between a welfare state and a totalitarian state is a matter of time. The more that we implement welfare, some form of welfare, government-provided goods and services, the more we devolve into a totalitarian state. Because then the more, the more that we enact those welfare programs, the more, the more that people become beholden to them. And then you develop a group, you create a group of voters, you create a group of people that cannot live without the state's intervention. They require that the state be present and take care of them. 
but in order to pay for those welfare, in order to pay for that welfare, you have to take from those who have it, who have the money and the resources to deliver it. Because the government doesn't produce anything. So it can't just simply produce food. It can't produce housing. It can't produce medical care. It has to take from those who have it in order to provide those welfare benefits to other people. Because people will not just willingly give up the, the product of their labor. Farmers are not going to grow, to grow crops out of the goodness of their heart. They want to be compensated for that. Doctors are not going to see patients out of the goodness of their heart. They want to be compensated. Construction workers are not going to build housing units for free. They want to be compensated for that. And so the state must take away from it, even if they are going to compensate medical doctors and farmers and construction, uh, construction crews. They have to take money away from somebody else in order to pay those crews, in order to pay those workers. And so now you begin the dreaded spiral into totalitarianism. All right. Well, anyway, I encourage anybody to go out and read Ayn Rand. Atlas Shrugged, if you read Atlas Shrugged, it's almost like reading exactly what is happening in the world today. And it's a slow burn. Even, even the world is a slow burn. It's a slow, it's a slow dreaded march to communism. It really is. But you can, as you read through a book like Atlas Shrugged, you see all of the things that are happening in the story. And your mind immediately goes to the parallels that are happening within our own governments and within our, within our own economy. So if you haven't read Atlas Shrugged, I encourage you to do so. Yes, it's a, it's a long book. It's a long book. It's a, it's a little over a thousand pages. I think it's like around 1200 pages long or something like that, but it's definitely worth it. It's definitely worth it. And uh, it's definitely, I think, required reading for just about anybody who lives in the West. I do have other thoughts on Ayn Rand that I'm not going to get into now. Ayn Rand has this entire, has her, her own, she developed her own um, philosophy on life. There was a time when I believed in her philosophy, or at least I felt it was the right approach. But as I got more and more into it, and I was studying it a little bit more, there were some things about the philosophy, objectivism, that I didn't feel was enough as a philosophy. And maybe one of these days I'll do an entire episode on objectivism itself and explain the aspects of it that I think are, are good. But then I'll also explain some of the aspects that I think um, are a bit left to be desired or not. That's not really a good term. I think the, the area, there are areas within objectivism that Ayn Rand just simply explains away without giving enough meaning behind it and she tries to but she doesn't do a good enough job explaining certain things uh, she has these she tries to create these axioms around objectivism and you have to you have to be able to buy into the axioms in order for objectivism to really become meaningful as a philosophy but there are a few of those of those axioms that are very difficult to swallow because of her outlook or the way she viewed 
the world around her. And it's in those situations that I struggle with the philosophy of objectivism and why ultimately I felt that objectivism was not an ideal philosophy for everyday living, for everyday life, like some others, like some other types of philosophies. Um, but that's not to say that her books on socialism, communism, etc., and free markets are not worth the re- worth reading. They definitely are, regardless of what a, what you think about objectivism uh, in and of itself. So, perhaps more on that on another day. Anyway, thanks for thanks for listening, and I'll be back next week with another episode. In the meantime, you've been listening to the Orlando Ramirez Show. Take care, everybody. Cheers.